This morning reading text is coming from the book of Proverbs, chapter 3, from verse 1 to 7. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart. So you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. This is God's words. Austin, thank you. I love your accent. It is so awesome. I don't know if I was feeling God or just the power of that accent. I can't tell. Um, that was glorious. Um, Good morning, everybody. My name is Chris Bennett, and I'm the lead pastor here, and it is so, so good to be with you. We are continuing in a series called Wisdom Calls Out. And what we are attempting to do is to hold up our lives to God's Word, be impacted and changed by God's Word, to be influenced by God's Word in such a way that we seek to live for His glory, that we want to live by His wisdom. We want to live His way. His way. And I think His way is the best way. If you remember some of the ideas that we've talked about in this series so far, is both Jeremiah and uh, Solomon in the book of Proverbs say that God created the world by His wisdom. Yes, the power that led to the creation of the world was God's power. But the impulse or the motive in creating this world was God's wisdom. And so if we, it only makes sense that if we are going to live uh, in a healthy way in this world, in a way that God wants us to live, in a way that we are not living against the grain of the universe, we need to come into agreement with what God says about how to live and submit to him. In short, God knows the best way to live in this world. And we want to follow his commands. We want to live by his wisdom, his wisdom. So in Proverbs 3, if you remember those first uh, 12 verses that Austin read to us this morning, there are some, um, these aren't necessarily commands as much as they are sage advice and wisdom on what it looks like to live to the glory of God. This is what it looks like. And he says this, uh, uh, Solomon writing to his son, his son. We don't know how old his son was, but maybe he was young. Maybe he was uh, approaching his 20s. I don't know. But he was his son, and he was writing to his son, and he gives him four or five of these, I think, core commands, core counsel for him to live by as he navigates through this world as he grows older. And he says this, and I, and I would submit to you that all of the statements in Proverbs, all of the commands in Proverbs, all of the, of the counsel that we can read about in the book of Proverbs, all will fall under one or more of these categories, if you will. And so I'm just going to run over them really quick. In verses, uh, chapter, Proverbs 3, verses 1 through 12, he makes these sorts of statements, my paraphrase. In verses 1 and 2, he says, son, obey my commands. We talked about this last week. 
We talked about the urgency that, the, uh, that Solomon was feeling as he was leading his son. The urgency he was feeling. Things about this life that his son could not possibly anticipate. He comes to his son and says, son, please, please, please obey my commands. Maybe there's a sense of sorrow in those commands. We don't know when this was written. Maybe there's a sense of sorrow in the sense that Solomon has come and said, I've failed many times. Please, please listen to what I've learned in this hard, hard life because life is hard. He says, obey me. And he says this, if you obey me, you're going to have a long and a peaceful life. If you obey my commands, you'll have a long and a peaceful life. In verses 3 and 4, he says, make sure that you don't let love and faithfulness get away from you. Why does he say it that way? I think intuitively we all know. Because love and faithfulness, we don't drift to those virtues. We drift towards bitterness and resentment. We drift towards entrenched anger and rage. We drift towards emotional volatility. We drift towards ugly. And he said, I know what your drift is. Make sure you don't let love and faithfulness drift away from you. Hold on to it. Cling to it. And he says, if you do this, here's what's going to happen. You're going to find favor and success with both God and man. If you get serious about faithfulness and love, if you get serious about that, you're going to find success and favor with God and man. And then in verses 5 and 6, he says these famous words. If you've been raised in church at all, you've probably heard them a time or two. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. Can I finish that? Several versions were uttered during that point. And uh, trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding and in all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. That's, that's wonderful. To trust in the Lord with all of your heart and never, ever, ever lean on your own understanding. So there's a call to humility here. There's a call to spiritual neediness. Don't ever think you've got this world figured out. Don't ever think that. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart. And if you do this, God will direct all of your paths. I think that applies to making good decisions in your life. In terms of big ones like the, the person you're going to marry. Maybe the right career path to choose. Maybe how to raise your children and train your children well. There's a lot of questions that we face that are, that are hard in this life, that are confusing, and yet we have to make a decision at some point. Put up or shut up. And in that moment, we need God's wisdom. And if we trust in God with all of our heart, He will direct us along those paths. It won't be easy. I'm seeing some of you right now. I'm remembering certain stories that we've been through together over a cup of coffee. And it was hard, but God's directing your path. And that's good. And then in verses 7 and 8, he again calls his son to a life of humility. And he says, if you choose humility, if you take the high road, if you submit yourself to wise people, if you do this, then it's going to bring healing and refreshment to you. Actually, it says healing to your bones. Healing and refreshment. Healing and refreshment. Anybody want healing and refreshment in here? <laughs> 
Me too. He says in verses 9 through 10, Honor God with your wealth and with the first fruits of all of your, uh, or, or honor God with your wealth or your substance and with the, with the first fruits of all your increase. And if you do this, your vats are going to overflow with wine and your barns will be filled with plenty. I don't have a vat or a barn, but I think that's good. I think he's talking about provision, economic provision. I think he's, he's going to take care of us. These are wonderful promises, it seems like. Honor God with your wealth. And then he says in verses 11 and 12, this is the one that people usually, they stop before these two verses. And that is, son, embrace discipline. Embrace discipline. Embrace correction. He says this, and you could tell that these words influence the writer of, of Hebrews. Embrace discipline. If you don't embrace discipline, then you're rejecting God as your father. Because a good father will discipline his son. He will correct him. A good father will not be apathetic about his son's bad character. A good father will shape his son or reshape his son. And that's a sign of God's love. So you better cling to discipline. I know it's hard. Nobody wants discipline. It's terrible. It hurts. That's why he says to him, cling to it. Pursue it. Your mind's going to tell you, this is awful. I don't want this. Remember my words. Cling to it. So he makes these promises, it seems like. He says, you're going to have a long and peaceful life if you obey my words. You're going to have favor and success with God and man. Anybody want that? Favor and success with God and man? Wave at me if you want that. I do do too. It's okay to raise your hand to these things. It's in the Bible. (laughs) Favor and success with God and man. I want a long and peaceful life. I don't want to die young and be filled and racked with anxiety. I don't want these things. But you see some values here that that go beyond putting money in the offering plate. We're talking about trusting God with everything that you have, depending on Him. We're talking about honoring God with the way that we spend money. We're talking about living a life of humility, not having to have the last word, putting down any kind of impulse for vengeance. These are huge. Yet as I've read through these over the years and have talked to people over the years and have preached to people over the years, there's a lot of folks who feel sort of ripped off that this hasn't happened. What's up with that? Why did I lose my faithful parent when they were 35 or 40 years old to cancer? And I lived in a single parent household until I finished high school. That's not fair. I watched my mom read the Bible every single day. She was kind. She supported her local church. She loved people. What's up with that? Why didn't that work? Why is it that I know people who are faithful givers to the church of Jesus Christ and to mission and to noble efforts carried out around the world and yet live from paycheck to paycheck, some below the poverty line. Why is that? Why isn't God God taking care of those people? Why isn't that happening? Why do some people that I know who are faithful followers of Jesus, 
fight depression and anxiety all day, every day. Is God not being faithful to his word? And especially in those years in the 90s and early 2000s when prosperity theology exploded in American evangelicalism, there have been a lot of people since then who've become really, really, really cynical because it didn't work. A lot of preachers made promises they couldn't back up. It didn't work. What's up with that? I want to answer those really simple questions this morning. Um, I'm kidding. Um, It's actually going to take me a couple of weeks to answer those questions. And I'll be honest with you, I'm not sure I'm going to answer those questions in a satisfying way. Because I still wrestle with these questions. I still wrestle with them. I wrestle with how to interact with those statements in Scripture. What do I do with that? Um, And I think that's where fundamentally below all of that, God's calling us to trust Him. I made a comment last week. A couple of you reached out to me and said, thank you. If you're going to follow Jesus, you better be okay with mystery because all questions aren't going to be answered. You're going to have to learn how to coexist with complexity. Mystery is a part of life. The Bible says that we only see in part right now. We see dimly, Paul said to the Corinthians. We're not going to have clarity until some appointed day in the future when Jesus has returned, has brought history as we know it to an end, and has inaugurated the rest of the new creation, which we sang about a while ago. We're going to praise God for 10,000 years. And then after that's over, forevermore. One of my favorite lines in music ever. Um, So we're going to try to get into that this morning. I want to remind you of a couple of things. One is, is that what Proverbs are. Proverbs are not, by definition, Proverbs are not promises or assurances. That is not what a proverb is. A proverb is simply a brief, poetic, pithy statement from a divine perspective on how to live life wisely in this present evil age. It's a poetic, pithy, wise statement. And in Proverbs' case in the Bible, they're from a divine perspective on how to navigate this this life with wisdom. Okay? The assurances or promises given in Proverbs are the likely outcomes we may experience when we weave the wisdom of Proverbs into our lives. They are the likely outcomes we will experience as we weave the wisdom of Proverbs into our lives. What's interesting is is that the New Testament gives us different outcomes when it comes to living, living for God. Different outcomes. That's interesting. Um, So i got a couple of goals for today. One is to continue our series on the book of Proverbs by calling us all, compelling us all to live wisely for God's glory. Many of us, all of us in here have regret in our lives. All of us do. We look back at a past decision or decisions or maybe even a series of decisions that were like dominoes falling where one toxic decision, one decision made out of hurt, one decision made out of vengeance, one decision made out of selfishness, one decision made out of outright hedonism led to a series of decisions that brought a lot of darkness to your lives. I want us to be compelled by the scriptures to live life Jesus's way. Why? Because he loves us. And he doesn't want us to do dumb things. He doesn't want us to do dumb things. But 
I also have the opportunity with Proverbs chapter 3 in particular to get below the surface of what Proverbs is directly teaching and spend a couple of weeks teaching you how to read your Bible. And so I'm going to be doing that this week and next week because I think some of of the things that I've learned about how to read Scripture have been totally eye-opening and transformative to me. And I want to deal with that this week and next week in particular. So we're going to deal with those couple of ideas. Um, If we don't deal with this, these seeming contradictions in Scripture, then what's going to happen and what has happened, especially in Western or American evangelicalism, is this. Subpar theology has begun to develop that ignores the full counsel of God's scriptures, which ultimately leads to the crushing of people's faith. Subpar theology grows when we don't really consider the full counsel of God's word, and that subpar theology often robs us of a childlike faith and dependence on God and leads us to a place of cynicism and outright distrust of Jesus. And I know a lot of people who struggle with this. Many of us are in this church. We struggle with this. And so I want to shepherd you through your cynicism and your skepticism and maybe the times that you feel Jesus has let you down by God's grace. So I want to go to the New Testament and I'm going to be doing a lot of scripture today. And I mean a lot. And you're like, man, you always do a lot. A lot more today. And so I'm doing this because, one, I believe that we should submit ourselves and come under the authority of Scripture. I really believe that. And two, I'm doing a lot of Scripture today because I want you to feel the full weight and gravity of what God says about the outcomes that will take place with people who are faithful to Him. We need to feel the gravity of this. And so as I go through these verses, don't pin your hopes on me reading something and then saying something really interesting and compelling to keep you awake. What I say is less important than what the Bible says. I'm just expounding. And I'm only seeing it partly. I'm only seeing it in a cloudy way. I'm not not saying that I haven't put a lot into this. And I'm pretty sure what I'm saying is right on. um, There's always the possibility that I'm not. But don't wait for me to say something good. The Bible can stand on its own. It can stand on its own. So you're going to notice today, I'm not going to get into like a lot of language interpretation. I'm not going to say, hey, this is really cool. There's this word in the Greek that means this. I'm not doing any of that stuff today. And sometimes people really want that kind of thing. And I'm like, yeah, that's great. Why don't we get to the Greek after we fall in love with the English? How about that? Let's fall in love with the English, then we'll get into the Greek. Some of you guys who are training in Greek are like, oh my, oh my God, I can't believe it. Ken, I'm sorry. Um, so, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. In Matthew 5, 1 through 12, Jesus, in the first sermon that Matthew presents to us that Jesus preached, this is amazing. Matthew contains five sermons that Jesus preached. I think Jesus preached a lot more than five sermons. But this is the sermon in which Jesus says this, basically, my paraphrase. The people who follow me are going to be into this stuff. The people who follow me won't find ways to justify their way out of obeying these things. The people who follow me are going to be the folks who see this and go, yeah, I want that. I want that. These are the Beatitudes, as as they've been called. 
And the Beatitudes are simply this. Blessings that are pronounced on people who, one, embrace the counterintuitive life of Jesus. They see the counterintuitive life of Jesus. They're compelled by that. I've said compelled like 17 times today. Sorry, I'll find another word. They're compelled by that. They're drawn into that. But they are also people, they are also people who because of their loyalty to Jesus will endure trials in this present evil age. In other words, their vats won't always overflow with new wine. Jesus changes everything with this sermon. Now what gives Jesus the right to change and alter what Solomon said? That doesn't seem very fair to me. Well, because Jesus is God. And you see, after the Beatitudes, there are six times that Jesus says, you have heard it said, but I tell you. He's showing us his authority over the Old Testament. He's showing us his authority. And so in Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 12, listen to these verses, because Jesus, what he's doing is panning for gold. Imagine Jesus leaning over in a little stream. Maybe in Colorado or California somewhere. And he's panning for gold. He's putting his whatever that thing is in the water. And he picks it up. And he's just sort of shaking it. And all the mud and all the sediments in there. And he's looking for little gold nuggets. He's looking for his followers. There are dozens, hundreds, maybe thousands of people that are listening to him preach this sermon. And he knows all those people aren't his. He knows that. And so he's panning for the gold, for his followers. Who are the people who are going to latch on to this and keep following me when this sermon's over today. And boy, he didn't let up. So he says, says uh, chapter one, chapter five, Matthew five, verse one. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Notice that he doesn't say, blessed are the poor in spirit, for their vats will overflow with new wine. This is Jesus pronouncing the blessings of the kingdom of God, the outcomes of the kingdom of God on people who follow Jesus. This is his pronounced blessings. So the people who are poor in spirit. I'm reading a Henry Nouwen book right now, and he was a man who was uh, a wonderful minister of the gospel, and left a teaching position in the Ivy League and took a position leading and pastoring people who were mentally impaired in Toronto, Canada. And it was a hard season for him, a hard life for him. And it was in this life that as he interacted with people who he could not amaze with his intellect... He can only be a calming, peaceful, loving presence with these precious, broken people. It was in that context that he said that God had called him to minister to the poor in spirit. But the poor in spirit, I think, represents a lot of folks, maybe, maybe a lot of us in here, people who carry around an angst, an angst, a tension, people who carry hurt, They carry questions because life is hard. And he says, for those of you who are my servants, 
who carry around this tension. Notice he doesn't say that tension's going to go away if you give your life to me. Come on down to the front. Let me pray for you. He doesn't say that. He says, for those of you who carry around an angst, a poverty of spirit, yours is the kingdom of heaven. The territory of God belongs to people just like you. Just like you. Verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. He didn't say, blessed are you who mourn. You will never mourn ever again. Because when you live in this world, you're going to mourn. You're going to experience sadness over loss, over trials, trauma, devastating circumstances. And he says that for those of you who are my servants and you mourn, you're going to be comforted. You're going to be comforted. I've got care and emotional presence waiting for you. And I will navigate your heart like a good shepherd through your trials. That's my promise to you. Now in his book also says that he realized that he was to become this kind of a person. The book I'm referencing is uh, The Return of the Prodigal, by the way. Beautiful book. And he says that he realized he was to become this kind of person. The kind of person that does to others what Jesus does to him. To be an emotional presence. To be stability. To be with people when they're hurting. Not to shoot them a text, praying for you. We can't do that for everybody in here. This is one of the reasons why we call people all the time, be rooted in our church. Because we know we don't have enough pastors, enough deacons to make sure everybody's comforted. But if you're rooted in the church of Jesus, chances go up, skyrocket, that you're going to be comforted when life hits you in the face. You're going to be comforted. We want that to happen to your life. He said, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are the meek. What is a meek person? Let's just stay in the English for now. How about that? What is a meek person? I'm sorry? Humble? Kind? I'm sorry? Thoughtful? What? Controlled? Mild-mannered? Disciplined? Do you think of vengeful? Nancy? Not seeking to be exalted. I like that. A meek person doesn't use coercion, anger, meanness to plow through life. A meek person understands that you don't have to be mean or harsh or cynical or manipulative or controlling or vengeful in order to make sure you get yours. Why? Because a meek person understands that our inheritance is not this world. Our inheritance is the age to come. For those of you who haven't come here much, or one of the things that we teach here a lot is something that we feel like a lot of churches don't teach very much. And not that we're better than other churches, I just feel like there's a terrible de-emphasis on something that is our hope in Scripture. The Bible teaches us that our blessed hope is that time when Jesus returns and he eradicates this world of sickness and disease, satanic interference, 
suffering, all that kind of stuff. And this earth is remade into the new creation where heaven and earth collide and merge into one. And all people who are faithful in Jesus are resurrected and given new bodies. And forever we live in the new creation in God's glory, loving one another because never again are we going to feel envy and jealousy and strife and anger and all that stuff towards one another. And we'll do that for 10,000 years and then forevermore. This is Jesus' promise to those who live meekly now. Why? Because we know that we don't have to get, get ours now. Some of you who know me are like, really, Chris? I know, I know I'm not meek all the time. Um, I'm learning. I'm learning in Jesus. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are those who feel an urgency, a craving for righteousness. And this isn't just personal righteousness. This is societal righteousness. This is my own righteousness, but this is your righteousness. This is righteousness, a hunger for righteousness in Syria. This is a hunger for righteousness in the streets of Memphis. This is a hunger for righteousness in my marriage so that I don't torment my wife with sullenness, selfishness, anger, and all that stuff that I bring to our marriage that she has to endure. This is a hunger and thirst for righteousness. It's a hunger and thirst that my children will love and follow Jesus all the days of their lives. I hunger for that. Some days I don't hunger very much. Some days love and faithfulness begin to drift away from me and I have to pursue it and go catch up with it. But blessed are these people. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They are going to be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. How do you know when something is mercy? When the person getting it doesn't deserve it. When you are in a place where you have the opportunity to give goodwill and kindness to someone who is utterly undeserving of your goodwill and kindness, then you are giving mercy. Now, you don't have to feel condemned if you're like, whoa, I don't love mercy very much. Am I even a Christian? Maybe you're not. I don't know. I don't know how serious you are about following Jesus. I do think it's helpful to look at our hearts and ask ourselves the question, do I even care about this stuff? Everybody wants to get deep and, like, and get, get into the text and learn and grow and have Bible studies and all that kind of stuff. But when are we going to say, okay, I'm going to wrap my heart around what Jesus says it looks like to be a follower. And I'll tell you, I'm, not, I'm the first one to admit, I'm, I'm not always the one who gives mercy. But I really want to. And so I found hope in the gospel because I know that Jesus loves me. I know that he died for me. I know that he took all my sin upon himself, all of it. The sin of my past, the sin of my present, the sin of my future, I know he's taken it all. So I don't have to wonder if I'm saved when I don't give mercy. But I can repent. And I can go back to those that I gave meanness to. And I can say, man, I should have given you mercy. And I'm really sorry. And own it. Like, own it. This is what Christians do. And he's not saying in order to be a Christian, you've got to be a person of mercy. He's saying that people who follow me, this is what's going to happen in their lives. You're going to begin to have an affection for this. 
I remember looking at verses in this same sermon where Jesus says that we should turn the other cheek when it's slapped. And I used to think of all the ways I would rationalize that, of how preposterous it was to take that literally. And the more I interact with the Sermon on the Mount, the more I realize I think we're supposed to take that literally. I really do. And if there's ever a question, take it literally. <laughs> take it literally. Don't retaliate. Don't retaliate. I had a mentor once tell me, Jesus can't defend you if you do. Jesus can't defend you if you defend yourself. He can't. He won't. That may have been the best thing I said, and it was somebody else. I should have said, I made that up. Um, everybody's like tweeting it right now. I can see all of you. You're like, was that again? It was really good. It was great. Was that in the Greek? Um, Blessed be the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. There's a little resonance here with Proverbs. In Proverbs 4, verse 20, uh, 23 and 24, it says, Keep your heart with all diligence. Protect it. For from it flow the springs of life. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk far from you. Protect your heart by eschewing, resisting corruption, evil speaking. Put that away. Be pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, rather. Because the pure in heart, those who watch their hearts, they're going to see God more and more and more clearly. Blessed are the pure in heart. Remember, these are not commands to be pure in heart and you'll be saved. That's not what he's saying here. He's identifying his people who trust in him. And his people who trust in him, even though we may absolutely stink at purity of heart, we can think to ourselves, man, I really want that. I really want that. If you're sitting here right now and you've been a Christian all of your life and you're like, this stuff is like, Ugh, I don't want nothing to do with that. You should be worried about the condition of your heart. You really should be worried. I say that not to create, well, yeah, to create fear. Yes, I am. I'm not trying to use fear to lead you to Jesus. I just think you should feel the gravity of that. I think it's really healthy. I think we should feel the weight of our brokenness and our sin. And there may be some of you right here right now who've never walked down an aisle, filled out a comment card, and you're like, you know what? I love this. Then my counsel to you is I think Jesus' faith is developing in your life. And the Holy Spirit has his hand on you. And he's cultivating faith in you. And I want to encourage you, yield to him. Yield to him. He loves you. He loves you. He loves you. Blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Peacemakers. Not people who suppress tension, but peacemakers. And if you are doing any peacemaking in your life, then you know how hard it is. Because it means having hard conversations with people that you really don't want to have conversations with. You make peace. Noticing that your heart is really angry towards someone and it just won't go away. It's going to that person, meeting with them, and softening your heart. Have you ever noticed that when you're at odds with someone, that you've got all this anxiety and anger and rage built up, and then being in their presence for like two minutes, a lot of the time, two minutes just sort of softens your heart because this story that you've been creating in your heart, you're finding it's just not true. We've got to fight for this. 
We've got to fight for peacemaking. There will be times that people you try to make peace with will not respond positively to you. And that's really hard in those times. That's really hard. But the Bible says that the payoff for being a peacemaker, living a life of peacemaking, walking into the tension of a broken relationship and making peace. What does it say? It's right there in the Bible. What? Oh, you're all whispering. Sons of God. And don't be alarmed, ladies, by the word sons. That word son is a... Look at it as, as heir. Heir. Firstborn son was an heir. He gets everything the daddy has. All of us, whether we're male or female, we are heirs of Christ. We get everything Jesus has by faith. So it's actually an honor that he calls all of his children sons. You are all my firstborn. You are all my heirs. You all get everything that I have because I love you and I want to rain blessings on your life. I want to rain it on your life. Man. Then he says this. We'll finish here. Once again, got through two pages of seven of my notes. Uh, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Wait a second. I thought being righteous meant that we would have a long life and it would be awesome. But he says, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, who suffer for righteousness sake. He says in verse 11, blessed are you and others revile you. Revile you? I thought we were going to have favor with God and man if we were faithful to God. He says, blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil falsely against you on my account. On my account, Jesus says. That's the thing that's changed. The game changed when Jesus showed up. Aligning with Jesus changes things. We're going to talk about why next week. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So in 2 Timothy 3.12, Paul says this, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Where's the healing and refreshment for my bones? What's the assurance? Your reward is great in heaven. Whoa. These blessings, again, aren't favor that that is earned by good behavior. Some of the older translations interpreted blessed as happy are you. Happy are you. Happy are those people who embrace the life of God's kingdom. A complex life made up of sorrow and gladness, patient waiting, delayed gratification, the hard but glorious work of peacemaking, a.k.a. breaking concrete. Peacemaking. The hard and glorious work of peacemaking. The cultivated virtues of mercy and humility. A singular desire for God's righteousness to abound in every corner of civilization beginning in our own toxic hearts. And a heart that grows purer and purer as we worship Him. This, my friends, according to Jesus our Lord, is the blessed life. This is the blessed life. I've got tons of verses that back this up. Tons and tons and tons. This is the blessed life. And for those of us who receive this, who want this, we're sons of God. Maybe you're realizing, man, 
I used to think this was stupid. Mercy, peacemaking. Who wants to do that? I'd rather watch Stranger Things too. For those of you who want this, that's a, that's, that's a clue. That, that's, you, you could be becoming a follower of Jesus. That's pretty awesome. So my question is for you today is to, to put like, I want, I, I want you to imagine me like giving you like 20 books, just stacking it on your arms and you walking out of here today going, what do I do with all this? I want you to feel the weight of this. I want you to feel the weight of this. For every cynic that says the church is so dumb, it's full of hypocrites, what about you? What about you? What about the condition of your heart? It's easy to pick low-hanging fruit. When Christianity is the dominant religion in a country, yeah, you're going to have tons and tons and tons of hypocrisy. Tons of it. But are we going to look at our own hearts and ask ourselves some real questions? Do I accept Jesus' first sermon? Do you reject it or do you accept it? That's heavy. Lord, thank you for today. I thank you for your people. This is so heavy. But God, I want to feel this. I want us to feel this. Help us, Jesus. Help us to obey you. Open our eyes to see you. I pray this blessing over your people that their eyes would be open to see the mystery of your grace. I pray that their hearts would come alive as they rub up against this sermon of Jesus's. And I pray, Father God, we would know they're alive by feeling that weight, that gladness, but also that weight that comes with picking up embracing what it means to look like a follower of Jesus. Our hunger and thirst for his righteousness. Our pursuit of a pure heart. Our love of mercy giving, peacemaking. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.